This podcast records Gladly University's top-notch child welfare trainings and turns them into digestible and easy-to-consume information to help you be more equipped as a parent, child welfare specialist, counselor, social worker, or a human navigating this world. Sit back, get comfy, and get ready to learn. Enjoy. Welcome to Gladden University. This training is called The Hidden Ingredients, Factors in Healthy and Problematic Eating Patterns. Our speaker's name is Carol Ann Darwin. Carol Ann is a registered dietitian nutritionist who works with eating disordered patients and their families. This is her passion, but her mission is prevention. Each of her patients have their own story and struggle, but with client-centered nutritional therapy and a compassionate, knowledgeable dietitian, it is possible to find a peaceful relationship with food, weight, and body image issues. We hope you enjoy this program. Happy learning. Let's get started. This is obviously my passion. I've done this for 22 years and I love working with my clients. I, this was, I didn't start this till I was 46. And so it's just like, say, it's it, it's at the core. It is something I was really supposed to do, I guess. When we talk about eating disorders, we use the biopsychosocial model. In this presentation, you're going to learn about the behavioral and physical warnings that you can look out for and then discover there's lots of hidden ingredients in this. I mean, I'm a dietitian. We had to have ingredients in here. And so um, that you can watch out for and pay attention to and then how to approach your teen. Um, Also, I think it's extremely important for people to understand what healthy eating looks like and then we all know what dieting, we live in a diet world, we all know what that is, but we're going to talk a little bit more about it. And then I'm going to take you through basically sort of if you're watching the child, what to watch for, how to differentiate between dieting and healthy eating. And then if you realize that the child's possibly in trouble, then what is the treatment going to look like? Everyone that my new patients that come to me, you know, obviously we're not looking for an eating disorder in their child. And then when they get into the process, it's very overwhelming. There's a lot of people involved with treating eating disorders. These are some statistics that this is why Jennifer asked me to come and do this talk, I have a feeling, is because as we were talking this summer, I had told her that the eating disorders just, you know, I know that you're aware that the suicide numbers went up over the pandemic and there was so much anxiety and so much depression. And in the eating disorder, in our world as we speak of it, it was terrible. I went from three days a week working and seeing maybe five to six people a day. I was trying to cut down a little bit to six days of working scenes, really six to eight people a day. And referrals were coming from everywhere. It was so sad. And the thing is, these kids, there were more children sick and they were sicker than we had seen them before. Down at the bottom, I've got treatment centers for eating disorders reported a 30 to 40% increase. We had kiddos waiting for three months to get into treatment center, where normally we can get them into treatment center within like two weeks 
when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. We're getting them in faster now, but again, before that, we weren't. Typical onset is about 12 and a half years old. So obviously adolescence, we wanna pay attention. As a parent, uh, I've already done this, you know, my child is 43. So <laughs> been through all of the adolescent years, long time ago, but this is our typical age. And, and if you don't see it then, there's other pivotal times that you can see an eating disorder start. And it would be around 16 when their life is opening up a little bit more and they're got their driver's license and now they can go and do what they want to do. And also some of these kiddos um, are taking the wrong path and they don't want to take the wrong path. And so they don't know how to handle that. And, and I don't know, but I didn't discuss everything with my parents. I don't know about my audience. If y'all discuss things when you were teenagers with your parents, but you know, I think that this generation now is much better at trying to um, emotionally prepare our, these kids. I've got a 10 year old granddaughter. I know that my, my daughter's doing her best and trying to help with the emotional part. None of us were taught, I'm, I'm probably much older than most of y'all out there, but um, we weren't taught to talk about our feelings. You just kind of get over it and move on. But that second one, anorexia, is the third most common chronic illness among adolescents behind asthma and obesity. Pretty scary. Our children admitted there was a 119% increase in the last decade of treatment center. And then there's about 33 million children, women, and men who suffer from eating disorders, while 34 million have diabetes. Now, there was a reason that I put that the way I did, and that people stop and think, what are our commercials about nowadays? They're about medicine and other things, but we have a lot of commercials about medicine. I am not taking anything away from people who have diabetes. They deserve to have all of the research possible so that people can, doctors can help them. But when you look at that, those numbers, do you ever hear anything about eating disorders on TV? Is it talked about as much as cancer is, diabetes, heart disease? No, it's, it's the one that is shameful. It's a mental illness. And so thank goodness we have been able to talk about that more openly with the pandemic. So hopefully that'll help. Um, eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness behind the opioid use. Now, actually, <clears throat> before COVID, eating disorders was number one. But during COVID, the opioid use became worse. Well, over it started before, but then it got really bad. And then this will probably surprise a lot of people, maybe not, but binge eating disorder is the most common of the eating disorders. So when we're talking about the eating disorders all the way through, then I want you to think about anorexia, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating. They're, they're on the same continuum. They're all about emotions. And so binge eating in someone's mind may not be as bad, as anorexia, because with anorexia, you can physically see what is going on with that person. With binge eating, that's not as easy to see as to what is happening, but emotionally, the same thing is going on. What is an eating disorder? 
everyone probably knows this, life-threatening illnesses, they are not choices. Years ago, everyone used to think that, you know, it was someone with, you know, of the Caucasian and, you know, it was the overbearing mother then that she created these eating disorders. Thank goodness we have gotten away from that because they are caused by all kinds of things and many things we have absolutely no control over. But they do affect all genders. I mean, I'm seeing a lot more men. One year I had five males in my office with anorexia that were 12 years old unprecedented. Now that was many years ago, but I still have got males in my office today and with all types of eating disorders. It comes, have them in all socioeconomic backgrounds that come in all different sizes and shapes. Eating disorders are a way for that person to manage the unmanageable in their life. So the eating disorder is a coping mechanism, kind of like, you know, People use alcohol, people use drugs as a coping mechanism. So when a child that you are around starts presenting the eating disorder, then if you can think of it as they're trying to cope with something, we're trying to find out what, what is it that they're trying to cope with, what has changed in their life. And so these changes can trigger the eating disorder. 40 to 80% is genetic. And so those who have adopted children, you may know some of the information, but you may not know. And it also doesn't mean that just because someone in the family has an eating disorder, that that child is definitely going to have an eating disorder, but they have done a lot of research. And so it's just like anxiety and depression can come down through families, through genetics. So can eating disorders. And they're tied in with even someone who they've got alcoholism in their family. It could pop up as a eating disorder and non-alcoholism. Okay, here is our, our biopsychosocial model. Some of you, I think, are therapists out there, so you're very familiar with this. But for those of you who are not, this is really the best model. I like this model. They're starting to new, use a new model, but I decided it was a little too much for today. Melissa, that's a great question because what happens is that when you have a child that is overweight, many times, you know, the physician, they're all wonderful, doing the best that they can. Um, but when they see one that is overweight, then many of them, I, there are a lot of them that are getting better. So I don't, you know, I don't want to be negative about this and they're learning more, but unfortunately a lot of them will just say, well, we need to, you know, lose weight. You're what I'm talking about. You're right. You can't see people don't think that that person has eating issues, but now, and I'm not sure in the pediatric world, um, do you have to fill out a mental health little form before you take your kiddos in? So on those mental health screenings, that helps the doctor a little bit, but we would like to see a few different questions come on there. And because uh, there's no question on there about their eating. And unfortunately, kiddos who have binge eating disorder, they're extremely shamed. They feel awful about their problem. They feel guilty about the problem. They do everything that they can to hide the problem. And so when we 
talk about showing, we have to ask the appropriate questions to that child. And so if you go to, there are very few doctors that specialize in eating disorders. I just happen to work with one. And so, and we're fortunate in Fort Worth that we have our doctors, there's about four. And then there's another, our, our sister clinic is in Dallas. It was the original and they have probably 12. And so, but that's all in, in you know, the whole town in both of these towns. And we have so many eating disorders. Most of the doctors that I do work with that are not in our office, you know, are very good. And there's a lot of them that know there's an issue and can spot it. And sometimes they decide to work with it. And other times they will refer them to our doctors just to work with the eating disorder and then send that patient back to that, that pediatrician. And so the doctor's gotta be good at asking the questions. And we just have to teach more of that. That's what we do is go out and our doctors go out and they educate the medical community as often as they possibly can on what questions to ask. So I hope that, Melissa, I hope that helped you. Okay, so here is our model that looks very confusing perhaps to some of you, but biological, that is what we are born with. Um, psych or psychology, our mind, what is going on in our mind. And some of that is, is you know, obviously from biology, but some of it is and so it's things that we've learned um, from our parents, from our grandparents, aunts, uncles. It comes from lots of places. Um, social, obviously, is the world that we live in. And again, we live in a fat phobic um, society. We live in a dieting society, um, body focused. And the peer relationships with the adolescents, I mean, that's their biggest influencers, right? Besides the media, which this is not about media today. We could do a whole session on that. And you can tell I obviously, the minute I said that, because I mean, I can't tell you how many of my clients are looking at Instagram and that's all they did during the pandemic. And they're comparing themselves. And then these girls would start the blogs during the pandemic. And some of them were innocent blogs, but others are, you know, they're one to talk about fashion and this and that. But the other girls are looking at their bodies and depends on what kind of body they have um, as to whether someone's going to be envious. And if the triggers, like if everything here with the biopsychosocial, if that is all happy and wonderful in someone's life, great, then they have well-being. But honestly, y'all, I'm not sure how many people do <laughs> because if you look at those individually, we all are going to have something just about going on in, in our lives, whether genetically we've got anxiety and depression that, you know, grandma had severe anxiety that could come down to a grandchild with and create severe anxiety. The neurochemistry, that's, that's our brain. How does it work? We all know that we have to give kiddos medication. We have to give adults medication because things are not clicking in there like they should. We've got kiddos with ADHD. They're susceptible to eating disorders. And so whether they're adopted children, whether they're natural born children, and you're raising them yourself, 
there's a lot of people that are at risk for eating disorders. That that's one thing that, again, you're worried about drinking and drugs and driving and sex. And now, unfortunately, we have another thing that that we have to watch out for. These are the types of eating disorders. And I know this may be redundant for some people, but we do need to go through this for those who are not as familiar. So anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, the one that you were talking about, the boy who just eats chicken nuggets and French fries or something, um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which probably what he has, other specified feeding and eating disorders. So we'll go through all of those. Anorexia is where you're going to restrict your calories and attain a very low body weight. They have an intense fear of gaining weight or being fat or even even though they're very underweight. A lot of people used to think that was trying to, you know, get attention. That is not it at all. Under this with the disturbances in shape perception, you need to know this is very, very true. There's a wonderful scientist um, over at UT Southwestern, which I love, and she's just great. And she, she's so down to earth, but she's a genius. She found by doing a special type of MRI, that there is a part of the brain that causes the person to see themselves larger. So you and I are going to see them as very, very thin. And I can tell them and the mother and the daddy can tell them all day long, they are not heavy. Everything is fine. You know, they don't care. And like I say, that is not what they see in the mirror. They see something larger. And it is very true. She did the research. It is published. Her name's Carrie McAdams, by the way. Um, bulimia. This is where you are going to do some sort of compensatory act of getting rid of the calories that you eat, whether it's through vomiting, laxative use, excessive exercise, fasting. But typically the pattern that you see with bulimia is that they don't eat much at all, if anything, at breakfast and lunch. Parent may not know that. And then at dinner, they may eat kind of a normal dinner, but then they tend to just eat the rest of the night. Again, some of that is hidden, some they try to. Um, parents are off doing something else. And so they're hidden, they're going back in the kitchen, they're taking food in their bedroom. And then they will binge on that food and then get rid of it in, in some way. And it's important to know that people with bulimia, straight bulimia, they are normally what you might call normal weight to a little overweight because there's many times they can't get rid of the food that they have eaten and it's already getting digested. And so my clients who suffer with bulimia, it's hard to get them in treatment center because they, they're embarrassed that they're not thin enough. They don't think they're sick enough. They don't want to be in there with the anorexics because they feel like the anorexics are going to look down on them because they're not as skinny as them. So it's just a, it's a tough disease and it's extremely addictive. Even anorexia is too, but the purging is very addictive. They tell me that it really, it provides a release for them. It is relaxing to them. And so those are important things for any parent or 
CASA worker to explain to a foster parent, you know, of, of what is going on, that this is not something that we can just say, okay, well, let's just stop doing that. Um, binge eating disorder, this is where you're going to have episodes of eating a lot of food in a discreet place. And to diagnose, it's got to be once a week for like three months, typically very, they're uncontrolled and, and it is like they've got blinders on. And when they feel that binge coming on, nothing is going to get in their way between them and the food. And they have to get to that food before they can move on and do something else. And so, again, something that everybody's got to remember. So they're eating, it's got the, you have to have three or more of the following criteria for binge eating. Sometimes, Sometimes some treatment centers will take binge eating patients if it's very severe, and sometimes insurance will pay for it. They were doing a better job of it um, a couple of years ago, and now the insurance companies are kind of, you know, they're bucking us. So this is a, it's difficult when they don't have some place to go, and especially the people who live alone. I know that's not adolescents, but in you know, it is very hard for someone who's older. Now, this one, avoidant restricted food intake disorder, otherwise known as ARFID. This has absolutely nothing to do with how they look. Or they don't care how they look, but has nothing to do with that. It's not about that at all. It's normally, normally comes from a fear of some kind with they, they either choked on something or something made them really sick and they had a lot of vomiting and they don't want to do that again. And so it's a true fear of certain foods and they won't eat them. I've got several of them right now that they're, you know, they all kinds of reasons that they won't eat certain kinds of foods. And I'm very glad that they're giving that child some boost or whatever you said it was. Um, because he needs that, but they do have treatment for these children now, and it really works extremely well. I know there's an occupational therapist um, out there, which I love them, and I work with an occupational therapist here in Fort Worth that they work with ARFID, and so I work with the kids for maybe a month to try to teach them the nutrition and why they need to have the food, and then they work with them at um, the occupational therapy, because some of that is is one of them, she told me it was really interesting. This little girl didn't like yogurt. And so, and that's one of my main go-to is the Greek yogurt because it's got the protein in it. And so, and it's always ready. They don't have to cook anything, but she wouldn't eat it. And the occupational therapist told me what she was doing is because she didn't like it and because she was afraid of it, she wouldn't swallow it completely. And so she would leave some on her tongue at the very back. And so she would taste that and she didn't like it. But once she could get her to do a complete swallow, now she's eating yogurt. <laughs> I'm like, yes. And that's just something I wouldn't, I didn't think of. So she taught me something and then now that child's eating yogurt. So this is a real slow, um, very slow recovery because 
I mean, I've got somebody coming to the house on next week that she's going to try carrots. So we're trying one or two foods at a time. I've got another one I'm doing Zoom with, and she'll try like two or three things at home, and we work out what she's going to try. So that one that you're talking about, it is tough, but that child needs some help. And so hopefully you can find some. First would go to a dietitian so the dietitian could assess it and see exactly what's going on. And I'm, that child may already have a therapist, I don't know. But if they do, then the dietitian and therapist can decide what it is. And then, cause I, as a dietitian, I can't diagnose. And I just kind of guess, cause I've done it for so long, right. but, um, if it, the child needs to be referred to an occupational therapist, depending on where they live, they may not have a resource there. If they're in the Metroplex, there are resources and I'll be happy to let anybody know. Um, there's a couple of them in, in the area. And then patients with ARFA, the reason they do have to have the medical care is because their complications can be as difficult as, as the anorexics. Um, because they're not getting the nutrition, they can, they can actually lose growth. And so we don't want that to happen, but some can and um, have. Um, they need to have a good workup. So that way, if, she, if that client came to me and to a therapist or even just me, I'm going to make sure that they have a good workup and go to a doctor who knows about ARFID because a lot of people don't. Um, treatment must be focused on the eating disorder component. So it's not, you know, we're just going to fix this again about with, well, you just got to try that food and eat it. That's what we did as, a, you know, as children ourselves, our parents put the food out there and we ate it. If we didn't eat it, we got in trouble. We can't do that with our food. It is, it is mental. Um, other specified feeding and eating disorders. This is just where People kind of get lumped in here that they've got some eating issues, but we can't pinpoint, it can't be, you know, like, limit, like the atypical anorexia. What that may be is someone who is overweight to begin with, and then they drop weight suddenly, and they're not eating hardly anything, but they're still within the norm range of weight, and so, but they're not eating, so they're going to be malnourished that's atypical anorexia. And so this is where the diagnosis would go. And then that way that person could get into treatment center and they could work with us outpatient. But if we can't get it done outpatient, then we do have a good diagnosis to get the insurance company to pay for it. So that's what all these diagnoses are about. Like the ARFID wasn't in there many years ago. It, they were called picky eaters. Well, they're not gonna pay for that at treatment center. And so now they have true programs for ARFID and the insurance companies will pay for it, thank heavens. Orthorexia is not in the DSM-5. And what orthorexia is, it's clean eating. And this is, this is very popular right now. And it is very dangerous. It, again, really has nothing to do with body type or striving for weighing a certain amount or looking a certain way. It's just that they are, they, there's so much media on, you know, we can't have fast food and it's bad and we've got to get healthier and we don't want any GMOs. We don't want any processed food. We've got to cut down the sugar. We're inundated 
with those kinds of messages. I'm a dietitian. Of course, I believe in healthy eating, balanced nutrition, variety of foods. Yes. But with, with this group, with the orthorexia, they also have some OCD going on. <laughs> and so they take it to the extremes. And normally they fix, they won't eat any food that other people fix. And it's going to just be what they fix. The consequences of this are malnutrition and of course, social, social isolation. There is a lot of anxiety around it because they're so nervous about what kind of food they're going to get. That phrase, no innate eating pattern, innate is the same thing as like intuitive, just a normal eater who has no problem of eating whatever and going to restaurants and enjoying all different types of foods. But the orthorexic is going to avoid the restaurant. It's very difficult for families when they want to go out to eat and you've got someone who is, oh, I'm, I'm eating clean. And so they're not going to touch anything from a restaurant. Here we go with the behavioral and the warning signs and the risk factors. So there's a lot of CASA people out there. So I'm going to go ahead and address this one first. The possible history of abuse. And this doesn't matter if this is a child that is in CASA care, it's a child in their own home, a foster, an adoptee, it, it doesn't matter. We children typically do not come and say that they've been abused. And so it may show up three years later, four years later, they may have totally blocked it out of their mind. And then they get with a therapist and the therapist realizes something's not right. And the child feels comfortable enough to admit that they have been abused. And so uh, this is so sad in so many ways. And this definitely contributes to, can contribute to an eating disorder. And so when you have a child who's been abused, an eating disorder too, you've got to work with that trauma before you really, you work with them together. But those, the my friends that are therapists, you know, that's a long time in getting those kiddos healed. And sometimes they're not ready to talk to the abuse so you, about the abuse. So you work with the eating disorder first, then they can work on the abuse. It just depends on what the therapist thinks is, is best. And I also don't want you to think that just because a child has an eating disorder that they have been abused because that is not a true statement at all. But unfortunately, the children who are in the foster care system or the CASA, we do worry about them. And there are special therapists out there who work with children. Um, there's a great one, several, just I happen to know this one personally, but she is so good with um, foster kids. She's just great. Um, and uh, adopted children as well. And so you wanna listen for a child that is talking about their body in a negative way. Are they coming to you going, does this make me look fat? Is, is my bottom big in this? I don't wanna wear this. I don't look good in this. If that is a constant thing, then you need to be on alert. If that person is a black and white thinker, now, of course, most teenagers are, but if, well, I mean, if it's really black and white, then we're kind of looking at, uh, 
Okay, I'm gonna pay attention to this. Um, perfectionism, that's a big one with all of my clients. I have a sheet that I use for perfectionism with their foods. And yes, it kind of goes into the therapy part, but they get very perfectionistic if they have that quality and then boy, they pull it into the foods. And then that means, especially the clients that suffer with anorexia are just gonna eat X number of foods. That's not the ARFIC kid. It's the anorexic um, child. Obsessive thinking, they just can't stop thinking about, you know, the body, the foods. It's just going on and on and on. Low self-esteem, um, sense of over-responsibility. You will see that with a lot of these kiddos is that just, you know, they're on top of their grades. I mean, there's one thing I can guarantee you. They're going to do the eating disorder well, and they're going to make good grades. That's kind of the irony of the job is I get to work with some of the smartest, most talented children on the face of the earth. And you think, poor babies, how can they have low self-esteem when I can't sing, I can't draw, I can't dance, I can't play anything, any musical instrument. <laughs> these kids are just unbelievable i mean you should see some of the artwork that these children i'm just i am blown away with stuff and i ask them to play things for me you know if they play the flute or the violin if they dance i'm like let me see i want to see videos of that and uh, i had one that was supposed to play the drums for me he never did um so maybe i'll get him to do that someday and then um gender dysphoria which is obviously that's been you know on our radar for probably five years or so and that's so tough it is tough on the parents it's tough on the child and so we see a lot of kids with gender dysphoria with eating disorders a whole lot excessive intake of healthy foods and again it depends you're you got to watch for kind of okay we're we talking orthorexia here are we talking we keep we're losing a lot of weight and is this anorexia that's trying to develop um, your anorexics are known for wearing oversized clothes to hide the fact that they are so, so thin. Mood swings, that comes from, <laughs> I asked my parents, it comes from not eating enough food. And it comes from, you know, eating just a little here and a little there. And I asked my parents, I'm like, can you ask, can you talk to her one day or ask her to do something one day and she's fine. And then the next day you may ask the same thing and she bites your head off. And they're like, oh yeah. And I went, okay. There you go. We had a blood sugar drop. So, so then if we notice that that's happening, it could be teenagers. Yes, it just could be what's going on in their world. But if you've got all these other things going on in the mix too, then that's one thing that you pay attention to. They'll complain of, oh, I can't eat it because I'm gluten, you know, I'm allergic to gluten, but they've never been tested. Um, I can't eat, I can't have dairy because it makes my stomach upset. We get so many in there with stomach issues. Here's a big one. Maybe they never cooked, but now they're cooking and they're normally baking and they take such pride and they're watching the channel, you know, cooking channels and they're going through Google, typically Pinterest, not my friend. 
um, because it has lots of diet uh, recipes on there and they make all kinds of diet foods. But if their cookies are not diet cookies, then they're going to give them to their friends and their teachers and their mother's friends. And everybody's like, yay, she's such a good cook. This is wonderful. But what they're doing is being around food, but they're not eating it. That gives them a high it really does because they're able to make it but not eat it. How many of us can make chocolate chip cookies or brownies and not eat them? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> not gonna happen in my house. <laughs> so if you have a scale, they're gonna be jumping on that scale all the time. So we wanna put up the scales, um, critical of themselves and others. These can extracurricular activities where they focus on body size, weight and shape. So you're talking about, you know, your runners, wrestling, whether it's male or female, it doesn't matter. Ooh, that's, that's a big one because what do they do for their weight classes? They have to make a certain weight to be able to wrestle that night. Well, let me tell you, a lot of eating disorders in that group. Runners, like I said, swimmers, um, gymnastics. Um, so be careful with those coaches and what the coaches are saying to those kiddos. And please pay attention to what your children are telling you that the coaches are saying to them. Because there's a lot of coaches out there who are not educated and winning is the end all another whole presentation. Um, drinking excessive amounts of liquid, water fills them up. And so if they weren't a water drinker and all of a sudden we just drink and drink and drink and water, that replaces food. Um, hiding food, we've talked about that a little bit. They, they, they will body check. And so they'll feel their arms and the girls are touching their legs or their stomach a lot. There's a great study. Um, Ansel Keys did it in 1944. We were starting to have to ration our foods in the United States. And he had a lot of um, information from the concentration camp camps. And so he had diaries and he talked to some of the people about the starvation there. And so he did the study on starvation. We couldn't do that now. But it's, it talks about that he had college educated men, there were about 25 in, in the study, he started out feeding them their normal amount of food got them down of which was around 3000 calories got them down to about 18 dropped them down to even lower. And so many things that his men did that the client I see in the clients and I asked them to read the study, because I can make, if I did what he did, I can make anybody driving down the street have those same responses that he did. And it was, they were hiding food, they were stealing food from the other, other people or trying to get food from the kitchen. They wanted to weigh themselves. This is 1944. I mean, you know, scales and going to the gym was not, not a big deal back then, obviously, but his people wanted to do that. Um, the child is counting calories, fat grams, self-harm is another thing that comes along with eating disorders. And sometimes you'll see the self-harm first. And again, that can be some abuse, some trauma in that child's history. I'm not saying that's always the case. And the self-harm is, is for those of us who have never had any self-harm or had any contact with it, it's hard for us to understand like bulimia when you don't like to throw up, 
how that becomes so addictive and that they say it feels good. The self-harm does the same thing. Um, constantly looking in mirrors, they'll look in mirrors and they'll also, like if they're walking to classes or walking in near any, there's a window to my left over here. That's what I'm pointing to. And so if they were outside walking down the sidewalk, they'd be looking in all of these windows at their reflection to see what they looked like. So these are the physical things that you could see. With bulimia, uh, many times they might complain of a sore throat and not really thinking. I mean, this is with our adolescents, they do give us a lot of hints without realizing that they are because they normally want to keep this underground and keep this to themselves. But if you're on top of it, then if they're coming to you with, oh, I've got this sore throat, I don't feel good today, blah, blah, blah. Just because they have a sore throat does not mean they have bulimia. But if this is a chronic thing, then, and other things are fitting, then you've got to look at it. Um, hair loss, that comes from the lack of protein for some strange reason. My clients think that protein is going to make them fat. And I'm just like, oh, please. But this is most of our girls, especially, don't like to lose their hair. And so if their hair is starting to fall out, you know, then it's like, oh, mother, my hair is falling out. Well, okay, what's going on here? So that's some, and obviously stress can cause that, yes, but, and there are other things, but again, that is a sign. Um, dizziness, so if the child gets up from the table and, or the couch, and they're kind of, oh, whoa, then you want to question, okay, have you had enough to drink today? What um, did you, when's the last time you ate? And um, because that's definitely a sign that something is going on. Um, again, we, I talked about the recurrent stomach problems, and this is just so typical because with their, there's something called the brain gut um, axis. And so our brain and our gut are talking to one another all the time. And y'all probably know we all carry stress in different parts of our body. And so some get headaches, some get shoulder aches, but a majority of the clients that I see have stomach issues. And so that's that anxiety down in here. And it just causes all kinds of havoc for those kiddos. And, you know, if mama's not aware, doctor's not aware, then they're going to put them through all kinds of, you know, send them to the gastro, all kinds of tests. If they had sent them to some, an eating disorder person, then they would tell them, oh, don't do that yet right now. Let's see if we can fix it. And if we, you know, sometimes we do need to check it. Yes, that is true. Um, but sometimes we can just try to work with the foods and see how, if it gets better. Um, purging can call ruptures in the eye vessel, a little redness there. A lot of kiddos will bruise easily. And again, um, it's not uncommon at all for them to complain of headaches, a lot of headaches. Heartburn, again, comes from bulimia. Amenorrhea is not having their period. So I know the athletes are, it's common for them not to have their periods. But if they're not eating and they don't have a period and they're an athlete, then you're at high risk for bone problems. So need to keep an eye on that. They're all freezing to death in the middle of the summer. I keep blankets in my office because they are just 
I can't stand it. I have somebody come to the house because I'm remote. And so we sat on the porch and wind was blowing and she was just freezing. I had to go get her a blanket, bless her heart. And it was, you know, 90 outside. Um, extreme fatigue. They're going to be really tired. Sometimes they'll complain about it. Sometimes they won't. This one is interesting on the failure to heal from an injury or a surgery. I had one client that was in a wreck, car wreck and broke her ankle and doctor did surgery and it wouldn't heal. And I said, did you tell him that you have an eating disorder? And she said, no. Mm -mm. And I said, she said, he's wanting to redo the surgery. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I said, please, let's call them right now. Let's tell them what's going on. And let's give you six weeks. And you work really hard with getting that protein in because every new cell starts with protein. She wasn't healing because she wasn't eating hardly anything, much less her protein. So she got it healed in six weeks, so she didn't have to have another surgery. So that was great. Um, frequent urination. The first thing that anybody is going to think of is diabetes. First thing, type one diabetes. And I don't blame them. I would too. But this has to do with the hormone that does not work properly when you're not eating enough fat. And it allows your body to let go of water when it shouldn't be. So that's another reason, and we talked about the dizziness, that that child may be thinking, well, yeah, I'm drinking water, I'm drinking water. Well, then you need to ask how often are you going to the bathroom? How often are you urinating? And if they're like, oh, yeah, I'm in the bathroom all the time. And oh, yeah, my friends make fun of me because I have to go to the bathroom. They got to stop because I got to go to the bathroom. That's another little sign you need to pay attention to. Okay, these are warning signs for boys. Um, I've been through some of this, the only thing in there, I think that that teasing about being underweight and overweight, that that overweight for the boys can be a big one when they're like 10 and 12. And of course, we're all changing at that point. And even the girls, but you'll see a lot of kiddos. That's why I had those five boys that one summer. They were overweight and kids teased them. Uh, the muscles, you know, the boys now, if you learn a mirror, they're going to just see kind of waist up. And so now they want, you know, that's been a while around for a while with the having big muscle. Um, okay. Adolescence. This is why I'm here. It is a very critical time. These are, the, you know, major hidden ingredients in here. So, this is when we're growing during adolescence. We've got hormonal production, bone development, and neurological development. Our doctors are adolescent medicine doctors. I'm not, pediatricians know all about this too, yes. But this is some of the very important things. Typical growth. Um, so, so the disruption, like I say, is going to normally be with the previous. Pre Y'all, I can't say it, pre-puberty. <laughs> and so if you see that, well, you've got a lack of growth or a stagnation of growth on the charts. Um, their nutritional state is certainly going to be affected and there's going to be medical consequences that may not be able to be reversed with those bones. This is a typical growth chart of someone with anorexia. So you can see where that weight is falling off. They kind of were a little stagnant over that 10, 11, 12. And then at 13, she starts going down. Um, this is a boy. Um, his was plotting normally at 90%. The growth starts slowing down. And then you see that weight really drop. And that weight now goes down oh, somewhere around the 50%, I think. And so 
everybody's like, oh, well, look, he was always at 90 and now he's lost weight. And everybody is so happy and so proud, but he's malnourished. He may not be eating hardly anything. He doesn't have any energy. This is a typical, this is a big alarm for a dietitian to see a chart like this where other people possibly be going, oh, this is wonderful. Um, so early detection is key to getting these kids treatment. This is research that was done that typically they did, they saw that at 9.4 months before the child actually saw the physician is when the eating disorder was starting. So, and sometimes it takes that long to recognize. This, I'm not going to read all of that. I'm going to let y'all can read that. But obviously, you know, this is a huge time for kiddos to, to grow. And with the females, some people don't know, but it's very normal for the females to gain weight before they start their period. And so if you've got a little girl and she's very kind of slender and all of a sudden she puts on a bunch of weight, yes, you're going to pay attention to what she's been eating. And is that really, and she may have hunger. I mean, she may just be really hungry and she's going to put that weight on. Yeah. But also she's getting ready to grow tall. And so you don't want to go, oh, we need to be on a diet. No, please. No, we don't need to do that at that age or anytime. And then and for males, their growth chart, I mean, they start growing um, behind the girls. And so, again, they put weight on two before that growth spurt and during the growth spurt. But if we don't panic and just kind of hold steady, then normally most of them will grow into that weight. On the bone health, and 40 to 60% of your bone health is built during your adolescent period with 90% at 20 years old. By the time we're 25 to 30, we have built up all the bone we're going to have for the rest of our life. And so it's so important. And, and I've had kids who've got eating disorders at eight and nine years old. And when they were supposed to grow at 11 and 12, they didn't, and they had to be put on growth hormones. So again, catch early. Um, if they're not having their periods, you got to have the estrogen to lay down the bone. And so that's another time. And, we, and then with periods, we've got all the emotions that come along with that. So another issue. <laughs> um, the neurological, we all know that that brain does not develop till they're about 25. Now, some of us might say that in, you know, guys, it could 50, but no, I'm just kidding, y'all. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Sorry, side note. Um, but in the adolescence, um, they do have impaired cognitive flexibility. That's where they get so OCD. They're, most of them are extremely sensitive. You might not know it. They might have that big concrete wall around them, but they're very sensitive. Um, if we don't get that eating disorder fixed in adolescence, then their maturity rate is behind their peers. And so I've seen too many kids entering college that are like maturity rate of 13, because that's when they got their eating disorder and they still have it. And then uh, again, some of those things are due to genetics as well as environment and childhood traumas. Okay, this is the innate and dieting and what I, you can read this. And the only thing I want to say about the dieting is that when I first started doing this 22 years ago, I think that the um, uh, 
the worth of the dieting industry was around 43 billion. And today it is $71 billion. And the next sentence after that little piece that I read, still the same statistic is 95% of diets fail. And I also wanna say that the people that I have in my office, they're in there to have a better relationship with their food that are typically binging that may be 30 years old, that may be 40 years old, that may be 50 years old. They spent their adolescent, sometimes their childhood at diet centers with a well-meaning mom who was trying to do her best, who's trying to do what the doctor said, who's trying to make sure her child is healthy. I think all of my parents love these children to death. They do not mean them and did not mean them any harm whatsoever. And so they didn't know. We didn't know that putting them on a diet, taking them to certain diet centers, you know, would cause them to be sitting in a dietitian's office when they're 30 years old, you know, at 280, at 300 pounds, when they were 180 in high school and they are you know, everybody said they should be 130. Well, okay, I, I get it. I mean, I understand we've got diabetes and blood pressure and cholesterol. I get that. But did it help? No, it didn't. And so it is a fine line. It is a fine line of eating well, and that's what the N8 is. And then eating everything in sight that you want. And, you know, I always, my phrase is spending the day at uh, Krispy Kreme because I like Krispy Kremes. So that's, I'm not saying do that, but this is something that we have to pay attention to. And then we have vegetarian vegetarianism and I'm not against being a vegetarian. Um, the only thing is that you want to ask, why are they doing this? And, you know, are they just eating sweet potatoes and broccoli? Well, you know, if you're going to be a vegetarian, I want you to be a, what I refer to as a healthy vegetarian. And we've got to figure out ways to get your protein in and to get your B12 and make sure you're taking your supplements. And so that's all fine. But if they're just eating three foods, you know, yes, that could be ARFID, but it could also just be someone who's restricting. And that is their reason is they're a vegetarian now all of a sudden. Um, how to talk to your child. Do not say, do not be judgmental, please. Um, argumentative. Um, if you use words like disappointment, angry, frustrated, say they're, they're not going to open up to you. And please do not say that you understand because unless you've been there, you do understand. Unless you're standing in my shoes, you kind of understand. Um, but kiddos get really mad about that. And they say, my parents understand. They don't understand. Got it. They don't. You're right. And so I try to tell my parents, don't say that to them, please. Um, don't make threats, bribes, bargain, plead with them. Bargains are not going to get it. I've got lots of parents that bargain with them. Mm -mm. Um, do be very compassionate. Look up eating disorders from reputable, rep, reputable websites. And I have some at the end of the talk. 
um, use I statements. Don't go, you do this, you do this, you do, do, do. you know, I'm really, you know, you can say, I'm noticing that you're not going out with your friends as much to eat. You know, what's, what's going on? Because remember, this is a mental thing. Try not to bring too much in there about food, food, food. Uh, set a time to talk to them um, so you won't be interrupted and be as loving and supportive as possible. Watch the language that you use around your house um, about yourself, other people, you know, does this make my rear look big? Um, I wish I could have an eating disorder for just a little while. Even adults say that to me and I just want to go, no, I do. I say, no, don't, don't, don't say that. You can't say that, please. You know, I don't want you saying that to anybody else. Um, I correct them. Um, you know, eat this now because when you get to be my age, then blah, 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 blah. We all have said these things. Yes, we all, because like I said, no one grows up knowing this. I didn't get into this till I was 46. So of course, we've all said this and without even thinking. And so if, you've, if you are suspicious of it, then try to be real cautious. Try to help your husbands be cautious in what they say and how they talk about the females in the family or the females they see on TV. This can be a huge trigger for that little girl who adores her daddy and she sees daddy saying, oh, look at those Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Look how cute they are, you know, and, and she's not shaped like they are at all. And so she's kind of like, mm, daddy likes, daddy likes that, that look. And I'm a disappointment to daddy. That's what they think. It's so sad. So when you get your treatment team, no, you're not going to have all those people on there, but I am going to tell you, you're going to have quite a few. <laughs> and so the physician, yes, you're going to probably go to the physician first. And then the physician's going to say, okay, I know this dietitian. So a lot of people will the doctors refer straight to me. I do the assessment and then I find the, the therapist because we work with therapists all over town. The dietitian, and when I keep, I've said many over and over and over, it's not about food. It's, it's about their mental health. Why do you need a dietitian? Because when they're with me, they're going to talk about their feelings. And so their food and their feelings are clamped together like this. It's tight. And so what we're doing, we're trying to pull it apart so that we can deal with food, I can deal with food, and the therapist can deal with the feelings. Of course, that takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work. Because let me say to y'all, these I've had too many kids say to me, Caroline, you're telling me to eat, but it is like I've got a tiger coming at me. It's like I got a gun at my head that, and, and there's no suicide thing there involved. It's just, I don't, I can't eat. I, I just get paralyzed. And so, you know, and you got a lady that you don't know saying, oh, honey, you're, you're, it's, it's okay. We're just going to go really slow, but we've got to eat, you know, because we can't do this. You're hurting your heart. You're hurting your bones. Do my adolescents care about their bones at 16? No, no. They think that happens to 80 year olds, but it doesn't. I've had, um, 19 year olds in there with osteoporosis. Okay, these are your levels of treatment. So you start with an outpatient team and see them weekly. If that doesn't work, there's no time limit on that. It's just whatever the dietitian and the doctor and the uh, therapist, if we're not getting anywhere, then we can either go to an intensive outpatient program and it, 
lays all of that out for y'all, partial or put them into the hospital and they spend the night. Um, these are the types of therapy that's typically used. I left one off, um, IFS, um, internal family systems, but just so you'd have a little bit of vocabulary for that is why I put that in there. Factors that interfere with progress in the treatment, um, I'm hurrying, <laughs> are if parents don't agree on things, oh, parents, you got to be on the same page, foster parents, everybody. Um, parental food issues, mom and dad are on diets, um, mom and dad are over-exercisers, don't realize it. Um, parents, patient splitting, they tell one parent one thing, another, or they'll tell one team member, well, my therapist said blah, blah, blah. Well, the therapist really didn't say that, so you've got to straighten all that out. Then I will end this with a big butterfly. Isn't that beautiful? Um, the butterfly is there because that's my symbol for all of my patients. And my kiddos are like in a little cocoon, and they're tight in that cocoon with that eating disorder. And what we're trying to do is if you know what a cocoon looks like, they've got a little thread looking things on them. And that butterfly has got to push, push, push to come out of that cocoon. So we're taking those little threads and we're pulling them apart. But as that butterfly ruin is trying to come out, he has to push because there is liquid in his middle. And as he's pushing, he's forcing that liquid out to his wings. So he lays there for just a minute and they get, they harden so that he can fly off. If he didn't struggle, if he didn't go through this struggle, he wouldn't live. And so we have to go through the struggle. If we had a magic wand that could make these kids well in a faster amount of time, that would be great, but they learn so much during the struggle. So that is why I chose the butterfly. And this is my favorite saying, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful people can make, an, make a difference. In fact, it is the only thing that ever has by Margaret Mead. Thank y'all so much. I'm sorry I had to hurry through this, but that is, again, is why I gave y'all the slides so that you could look at them. If you have any questions for me, um, my email address, I think is on there somewhere, I believe. With the picky eaters, you're, one thing, those growth charts are really handy. And so you're going to look at, is that child continuing to grow in the same manner, um, following that same path? Um, and, and what kind of nutrition are they getting? from the foods that they will eat. And um, I'm laughing because one of my friend's son only ate peanut butter and jelly for about two years. And he's, you know, six, three now, whatever. Um, so, <laughs> so it is a fine line, but again, that is where the dietitian comes in handy. And it doesn't mean, you know, mom can just call a dietitian and talk to a dietitian. You don't have to, a lot of times I will just have a session with the mother myself to talk to her to see what's going on, to see whether we need to bring the child in. And so then you're also going to look at, was there any changes in that child's life that when did they start having this pickiness and, you know, was there a certain time? Was it when they started school? Did they have attachment issues? Did they have sensory issues with, 
with hearing, were they real sensitive? Did they not like tags? So you're looking at all of those things too. And so if those are in play and we've got, you know, this pickiness now, then those are going to send alarms off for me. If you didn't have any of that and all of a sudden we're a picky eater, then you still got, you got to look at it and investigate. And so a lot of what I do is sort of investigating. And so to come out with a clear answer on that for y'all <laughs> is I don't have one because so much of what I do is gathering information, looking at the whole picture. And so I don't have a whole picture. Um, so again, call a dietitian and, and, you know, with Zoom now and because of the pandemic, if you're not in an area that has an eating disorder dietitian, y'all can call people in Dallas and Fort Worth or Georgia's got plenty of dietitians over there, um, eating disorder dietitians, but make sure that you have an eating disorder dietitian because a regular dietitian is not going to know the answer to this. You know, I've had a few clients that do have the religious fasting. And honestly, if the child was really sick, then we and the therapist and the doctor would all talk to those parents and ask if this child cannot do that. And I know that that, that has caused a lot of our patients, oh, a lot of pain um, to make that decision. Um, but we have had them, we have had many people say, we won't do it with her or him whatever. And sure. so is it causing an eating disorder? I mean, it, it could if everything else was right on that biopsycho, it could that could be the trigger, because you can these kids can be triggered from anything, it doesn't have to be anything bad. You know, again, it can just be dad saying something about a cowboy cheerleader. Can I say that it does? No. Can I say that it might? Yes. I would say the youngest I have seen is seven, I mean, eight. But um, I know that they have had children in treatment center because I'm friends with so many people in the treatment centers, um, especially at Dallas Children's. And then I know they had one at, at seven for sure. And I think it was six. The dentists do play a role. Now, I have talked to dentists and they say that many that they these kids come in and, you know, they're afraid to say anything now. All of my patients, I tell them and tell the mom to please tell the dentist because you can, what can happen, especially with bulimia, is that you can get this hairline crack. And if they're not taking x rays and those kids are not visiting, most of my kids do visit their dentist regularly. But if they're not, and if they're, but if they haven't been in a year and the purging started after their last dentist visit and they were purging a whole lot, then I'm like, get that child in for testing because here's the thing our teeth are a genetic thing as well and so some people can purge for six months and have three thousand dollars worth of damage in their mouth other people can purge for 10 years and have absolutely no damage to their mouth but yes the dentist needs to be alerted and you know I've told the dentist that I go to, <laughs> I'm like, if you 
suspect it and you can talk to the parents i i think that he should i mean you know if he's wrong okay and there's a way that you can talk to the parent and say i'm not saying the child has an eating disorder but we're seeing a lot i mean the kiddo could just have a bad stomach and have reflux and not have an eating disorder and hopefully that parent wouldn't be offended because I mean, the doctor could be saving the child's life, truly. And so, you know, I've told my dentist, I'm calling, eh, you need to talk to them if you notice something. And so, you know, they are, they are timid to say something. Carol Ann, I think Jennifer is going to wrap us yeah. up. I am. I just wanted to say um, a couple of things to Carol Ann, because she was, I mentioned, I kind of gave you a little peek behind the curtain that Carolyn was helpful to our family this summer. And um, our doctor was also amazing because my concern started um, was with pretty extreme sudden weight gain. Um, if I'm being transparent, I'm only saying this so other parents and professionals can um, benefit from some of this information. But it started, my concern started with pretty extreme weight gain. And I knew um, as, you know, a female that's in this in this, um, I guess, field, I knew that my son had um, some, I don't know, so he had, he has ADHD and he's adopted, but I also knew that I didn't want to add to his shame and his doctor was amazing. So I just want to give a shout out to the pediatricians because we never, she never, ever talks about weight with us. She never talks about diets. She asked, um, really, she's a very, her name's Dr. Ann Natter. If anybody is uh, looking for an amazing pediatrician, but, um, she would often, my son is 16. So he's able, first of all, to know that he, he could tell that he was getting weight because of his clothes fitting differently. And, um, I noticed that his eating habits were changing, but I also wanted to be careful about how we talked about that. And, um, Dr. Natter just showed Ben his growth chart. Mm -hmm. She didn't use any words or anything. And that would cause him shame. Yeah. And she just said, this is, you know, your growth chart. And he's kind of a math nerd. So he was, you know, he knew himself. He said, that's, that's not good. Right. And she did not put any value on that. She said, it's not good or bad. It's just, it's just information yeah. for you to have. Um, and so we're always looking at information regarding our health, whether that's what our blood pressure is, yeah. what our blood sugar is. Um, and so what was interesting to me about Carolyn and her practice is that, um, the, she talked a lot about the feelings aspect. We had never talked about feelings in relation to food because I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't want to screw anything up. <laughs> I was petrified of screwing something up. <laughs> and we all are. <laughs> Carolyn was, I, I didn't want to avoid it either. And so I had been very open with my own kind of food journey with my son in the hopes that he could learn from that. But Carolyn was amazing at just, um, just getting to know him first of all. So it's not this weird, um, like you're going to this, you know, even what she's called, she's a dietitian. And so just talking about food and how food can help us, um, be healthy. And she was just so compassionate and caring. And I just want to, if anybody is, is scared to reach out or they don't have the words to reach out, um, please just start with um, maybe your pediatrician, um, if, especially if you have a good relationship with them. And then maybe, um, you know, Carolyn has given us some great resources as far as um, 
looking into dietitians and that kind of thing. So I just want to thank her for her work because I do believe that she's saving lives um, and helps um, our kiddos with long-term healthy outcomes. So thank you so much. You're more than welcome. I I, I love what I do. Trying not to get emotional right now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because her work also helped open up some amazing dialogue between me and my son. And that was, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, So thank you for being with us today. And I hope everyone enjoyed the presentation as much as I did. And we'll see you later. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Gladney University's podcast. We hope you learned something special. To learn more about Gladney, check out our website at gladney.org. You can find this podcast where all the cool podcasts live, Apple, Google, and more. Thanks for joining us.